Welcome to the Ignatius Press Podcast. I'm Mark Brumley. I hope you enjoy the discussion in this episode. For more information about Ignatius Press, check out our website at ignatius.com. All right, good evening, everyone, and welcome to this Ignatius Press Facebook Live interview with the author and composer, Michael Kurek. Uh, I'm Thomas Jacoby, an editor at Ignatius Press in San Francisco. Uh, I'm in San Francisco, but I'm not at Ignatius Press. I'm at my home in another neighborhood. Uh, Michael Kurek has been composing classical, orchestral, and chamber music for many decades. Among the numerous prizes he has received for his work are the Charles Ives Prize and an Academy Award in Music from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. He graduated from the University of Michigan's doctoral program in composition, and just this year he retired from Vanderbilt University, where he had been a music professor since 1988. His 2017 album, The Sea Knows, from Navona Records, reached number one on the Billboard traditional classical music charts, and you can hear selections from this work, as well as many others, at michaelkurek.com. Um, Michael also served on the Grammy, Award, uh, Grammy Awards Classical Nominations Committee for uh, several years, and Michael, finally, is the author of the book, The Sound of Beauty, a classical composer on music and the spiritual life, published in 2019 by Ignatius Press. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, good to be here. So I, before diving into the book itself, I'd like to talk a little bit about your, your background. Um, so you've been a, comp- a professional composer for many decades, and you've more or less given your life to music. Um, <laughs> This kind of commitment to an art form, even an art form that most people know on some level and most people even love, I would say, might seem almost ridiculous to a lot of us. Um, so my question is, what made you fall from music originally, so to speak? Uh, what were some of your earliest or most memorable experiences with music, some of your deepest, most, uh, yeah, why did music, how did music grab you? I did love music and even classical music from a very young age. Partly because my parents played it in the home, and they played rather user-friendly type music, like the Pier Gint Suite of Grieg, you know, and things that kids would like. And um, we always had music playing. And uh, I remember also, though, an early penchant for trying to make up my own music. And one of the things I mention in the book is hanging upside down on the swing set about age four, just rocking back and forth and la-di-da, making up my own little tunes. And and I think uh, I was always just wired that way. And, you know, music is one of the few professions left where people use the word vocation, uh, other than religious vocations, of course. But um, uh, outside of that, uh, people don't use that word a lot. But I think uh, music is a vocation in that you have uh, not only a desire to do it, but a compulsion. It's not that I can compose music, but that I must compose music. I go crazy if I don't. The music is in my head and it has to come out and it's driving me nuts until I write it down and expel it. (laughs) And then more is there to replace it. Um, And then, you know, the vocation you know, a sign of a vocation is you have some natural ability uh, to do it. And as I said, that's kind of how I was wired for music. So it's not just something you do, but it's who I am. 
And, um, and then finally, the vocation of music entails a kind of affirmation from others at some point that, yes, you have something to contribute to the culture. That one you don't always get. And there are some times when I just felt like I was the only person who believed in me. You know, but eventually the, there were affirmations. And, um, and so I felt like, okay, I do have something to give to others. Now, did your parents, did, did your parents notice that you had a gift for music? You know, I, my late parents, uh, rest in peace, both of them did, didn't necessarily, they had a lot of kids, you know, I was one of uh, four and, and the youngest. And, but I remember I, I went, I had a paper route about eight years old and I bought with my money, I bought a harmonica and I brought it home and I taught myself with the little booklet that came with it to play several melodies. And you know, it's not easy to play if you try to play harmonica, it's not easy to play just one note on <laughs> harmonica. And <clears throat> I came in to my mother and I'm playing the Yellow Rose of Texas or something. And she's like, oh, that's good. Bye-bye. Go, go play. You know, there wasn't much notice. Oh, this kid must have some talent. But I begged to be in the school band. And from that, I just, you know, had the... Uh, and, and although my parents loved music, but it just didn't register that, you know, that they had a real talent in their family. No kidding. Um, what was your first instrument, may I ask? The drums. <laughs> and I played percussion instruments, and, and I took piano lessons, but I, I played the percussion in the marching band, in the orchestra, in the jazz band, in the rock band and um you know so it just wasn't enough i wanted to i was hearing melodies and you know so that drove me to the piano and that drove me to learn to read music and to be able to write down the things i was hearing so even from high school i composed a couple of pieces for the high school band to play and i did arrangements for the um pep band for basketball games and things like that and so um yeah i was right in there you know i mean i knew what i wanted to do with the rest of my life at a very young age mm -hmm. and it's funny because i have college students uh, i have had who were coming up on senior year and they still weren't sure you know what they were going to do but i always knew you know from about the sixth grade that i would be a musician in some capacity and maybe from about 15 that I would be a composer. Well, in a certain sense, you have a kind of a double vocation because you're not just a composer, but you're a, you've been a teacher for over three decades. And uh, so, yeah, for many years, just until until just this May, you were a beloved award winning professor of music at Vanderbilt in Nashville. And I would say The Sound of Beauty has at the same time a kind of clarity, a simplicity, a depth and, and even a sense of humor. Uh, it seems like it must have been chiseled out over the course of many years in the classroom. I mean, it's sort of a pedagogical book. It starts from starts from zero. It doesn't presuppose any sort of prior knowledge about music. It's speaking to someone who knows nothing formally about music um, and, and seeks to bring this person, the reader, um, to a, a degree of sophistication with music, um, spiritual sophistication even. Um, that is. And I yeah. had no 
desire to become an author per se. You know, I'm, a, I'm an active composer, but I had been thinking of all these ideas that are in the book for for decades, as you put it uh, earlier, and and they eventually coalesced into some form. I said, I've just got to write all of this down, and I wrote the book very quickly based on a lifetime of of study and experience. But I think that um, you're right about teaching. In my experience, I've known many great musicians, and the greater the musician, the greater sense of duty they have or responsibility to pass on that knowledge to the next generation. Um, I saw that very much in one of my own mentors, Leonard Bernstein, uh, who is always teaching and always loving to share and teach with younger people. And I think this is because music is one of the few trades left. I mentioned that it, it's one of the few trades that uses the word vocation a lot, but it's one of the few that still is largely imparted to the next generation by oral tradition. Most things now you can learn in a book or in a class with a, an online uh, curriculum. But let's say you're learning to play the piano and you have a piano teacher who studied uh, piano in the 1970s with, let's say, if he was very lucky, the great pianist Arthur Rubinstein, who lived to be 95 and died in the 1980s. And his teacher had been a student of Franz Liszt, the composer. Liszt had been taught by Czerny, who was a student of Beethoven. <laughs> and and he would, this teacher could show you you know, Rubinstein said Liszt did it this way and that Beethoven did it this way and show you the fingerings for the interpretation of that passage or the pedals on the piano that Chopin himself would have used. So, and all of this can't easily be put down in a book. So, so it's a real uh, mentorship and kind of oral tradition. It's almost like a monastic tradition of pedagogy. <laughs> now, Michael, so... It, why is music something that needs to be on some level studied and taught rather than just enjoyed? Why, for instance, does, does an ordinary lay person need to read your book? Why, why do we need this sort of formation in music to appreciate? It? Well, it's it helps to have um, to, to have a way to articulate something which is fundamentally beyond words. <laughs> we grasp at words to explain music. Someone said that writing about music is like trying to dance about architecture. <laughs> and um, it, words are inadequate, but, but I show in the book, I believe, how music works. What are these mysteries? Because it is a mysterious thing. It's invisible and it's in the air and it comes and goes and we don't know really what it is. But um, I've made, by making lots of spiritual analogies and um, other kinds of analogies uh, to our experience and our way of perceiving the world. Um, for example, I use, um, a, you have a credit card or debit card that has 16 numbers on it, and they put them in groups of four. And if they just ran them all together, we'd stumble all over ourselves trying to read those out to somebody on the phone or, or whatever, you know, because seeing them in little chunks of four, well, that's exactly like a phrase of music. You know, we, we put things in chewable bites. So there's lots of analogies to language 
and to perception of the world that I bring out in the book that help us understand why music speaks to us. I'm glad that you just mentioned a moment ago um, the this sense that music is something ethereal. Music is invisible. It's something ethereal. It's in the air. We don't see it. It almost seems like it's magical to many of us. Yeah. But, but really, right out the gates in uh, The Sound of Beauty, and this surprised me because you're a composer. I would think you would try to mystify music as much as possible. But no, <laughs> you, you begin debunking myths about music. And for one, you insist that music is not magical or mystical, but it's a concrete, it's a physical event. And uh, this material reality of music you know, it's something that can be felt uh, with your body. This, rea- this material reality goes hand in hand with one of the book's key concepts, I would say, uh, which is imminence, uh, which you contrast with transcendence. These two, these two words go hand in hand, imminence and transcendence. Now, so Michael, what do you, what do you mean by the word imminence? And uh, how is it crucial for your understanding of music? Yeah, in, in, the- in theology, there is um, <clears throat> excuse me, a dichotomy between or a balance between imminence and transcendence. Imminence and most many of listeners know this already, of course, but um, for those who don't, eminence says that God is in everything and is everywhere. But if you had only that, you might end up with pantheism, that God is the cre- is one with the creation. And But transcendence te- says, no, God is outside, above, uh, and separate also. He's in the creation, but he's also outside of it. And made it and could unmake it and he would still exist. And a, a human person, if, if you think about it, reflects that that duality because um, we are not only matter, um, you know, we're not just a lump of cells. We have an immortal soul and a spirit with mind, will, and emotions which will live on in transcendence of our lumps of cells, of our bodies. And So then progressing to music, music likewise, is a lump of matter. It's cells being, uh, it's atoms or molecules of gas being shoved through the air in waves and um, by a vibrating string or the vibrating speaker of a loudspeaker. And it reaches our eardrums, which vibrate sympathetically. Um, And, but then someone takes their transcendent human imagination and their creativity, their God-given creativity. We're made in the image of God, the creator, and we're wired to want to create too. And someone like a composer or performer takes those sound waves and forms them into shapes that seem to symbolize personality. By that I mean music can sound agitated, peaceful, can sound tender and loving. And so music seems to symbolize transcendence um, in, in that it is reflecting um, a higher personality. And uh, so a, disor- a disordered view of music then might be to think that music is a person. <laughs> um, and you might end up with idolatry and um, gazing into this wonderful mirror and forgetting your obligations to other people or even forgetting about God. But but if we have a rightly ordered thinking of music, we see that it is a wonderful symbol of God's eminence and transcendence ultimately. And um, so 
it gives us a sense of wonder and of um, praise and uh, doing it as someone who was created to do that by God within his blessing. Yeah, you use a great, you have a great term for music. You say that music is, it's essentially a sculpture and sound, but not just any kind of sculpture. It's a, it's a dynamic sculpture, a dynamic form, meaning that it's, it's a sculpture that moves and that develops and progresses. And this really, this is kind of what sets music apart to you. Um, right. In a lot of ways, this is dynamic. But I wanted to move on. I wanted to ask um, a question about your average listener uh, of music today. Um, you say in the book um, at length that music communicates to us in a lot of different ways, you know, intellectually, uh, emotionally, uh, and even spiritually. Um, and you explain why you offer a lot of theories about why that I think I, and I invite the listeners today to, to buy the book and, and read it by Michael's account, read Michael's account of it uh, at length. But you offer some very keen, colorful insights into the many different ways that people tend to listen to music, especially today. And some of them are a little problematic. Uh, mm -hmm. Could you give us some examples of different kinds of listening? Yeah, I mean, the th first thing that's obvious that comes to mind is people who cannot listen to music without multitasking. And they've got to be, you know, reading a book or playing a video game or some in some other way or talking on the phone uh, or writing something. And uh, that's great. I use music as background also sometimes. But there, at some point, if we can give it our full attention, um, then you're going to find out all that it has to offer, which is like uh, a, a wonderful boat ride through imagination and time and, um, and a magical storytelling event. And, but you have to really force yourself nowadays with all the distractions we have. A lot of people are what I call associative listeners. They, they can't hear something without being reminded of something else, like where they were when they first heard it, or maybe it was in a film, uh, film music, and they think of the story of that, or it's a song with vocal lyrics, and they're preoccupied by the words. But just talking about the music part alone, the instrumental part, um, if you can, again, get away from association and be free to let your imagination uh, run wild <laughs> as you're listening, it, it's, it's a wonderful experience. Um, then that we have analytical or critical listeners who are critiquing the performance or the performer or what they're wearing or their hair or maybe they were a little flat on a note or sharp or something. Um, or they're analyzing the harmony if they've studied music. And that also is a distraction from just enjoying the music. And then we have, uh, I'll give just a couple more. We have uh, what I call social or brand listeners. People choose music in order to associate themselves with a certain cultural group or lifestyle. So we have, you know, pickup truck music listeners. Mercedes music listeners, wine and cheese listeners, <laughs> even Christian radio listeners who want to identify with the Christian culture. And even when that music isn't necessarily always the best um, and in terms of just music. But, um, and, 
And then we have the problem of passive listeners, especially kids. The kids turn on YouTube and whatever, whoever is paid to be on the front page of YouTube or Spotify playlist is what they'll hear because they're being spoon-fed what to listen to. Or, of course, a radio station, you're listening to what they chose. And I encourage people to make their own playlist and pick out truly excellent, uplifting things and especially parents to give children more and better choices that they just don't know about at their age. Take them to a Broadway show locally. Take them to a symphony concert or the ballet and let them hear lots of other kinds of music than what the world is giving them. So, and that would be what I'd call an active listener. Someone who pays attention to the music itself and uh, gives it their full attention, who picks it out for themselves and curates it uh, for themselves. So the, it is an interesting thing to think about how we evaluate, how do I listen? And do I ever really just listen to music? A lot of people know, nor do they listen to orchestral music unless it's in, an, in the background of a film. You know, so people, what drives me crazy sometimes, people come up to me after a concert and they say, oh, that music you wrote should be in a movie. I'm like, no, <laughs> it should be right where it was on the concert stage. <laughs> you, you have a line in your book, you say that uh, for most people, music without singing is almost not music at all. You know, it's, yeah. they almost can't think about instrumental music as music. And um, you, make, you make a pretty interesting point. Uh, in one of the chapters of your book on, I think, how, how music communicates to the, um, to the emotions, you say that music moves us largely because it is, it's narrative. It tells a story. Even, even if there's no, there are no words, music tells a story. It kind of, it takes us, you know, there, there's a narrative arc, you know, there's a climax and then there's a resolution. And um, so connected with that, I want to ask a, qu a question about classical music itself. Um, so, you know, when most of us think of music, just as we said, we think of vocal music, you know, maybe pop, rock, hip hop or folk or um, yeah. anything. And you say that for most of us, like I said, music without singing is almost not music at all. But yet this book, The Sound of Beauty, deliberately deals almost entirely with instrumental music, with one important exception in the back. There's a great virtue rating song sheet for uh, the lyrics of songs that actually that your wife, I think, developed and is used in a classroom. It can help kids to discern uh, the goodness or uh, maybe misguidedness of, uh, <laughs> of certain pop songs, you know, and there's a, there's a good example of, of a Taylor Swift song that gets analyzed and gets a decent rating, but, uh, <laughs> but anyway, but you deal more specifically with music actually in the Western classical tradition and this book. Yeah. And so does classical music, as we think of it, have us have some kind of special quality or some power that sets it apart from other kinds? Is it somehow deeper than country or jazz, for example? Well, yeah, I mean, who can say what what is greater, uh, the melody to Greensleeves, um, which is known as What Child Is This, which was written in maybe the 1500s, simple, clear melody, or a Beethoven symphony. It's apples and oranges in a way. They're both great in their own way, and songs can be great, very much so. Um, and but But classical music does have an advantage in a way that it's something like the difference between, for me, uh, the difference between a poem and a novel, or a short story and a novel. Uh, a, a classical 
symphonic work is more like a novel because you have this, as you say, a long arc of a storyline. It's going somewhere. It's taking you on this journey. And this journey is reflective of, ultimately, I think, of our life story. Our lives are a story. We don't realize it because we're just taking one day at a time. Uh, maybe when we're older, we look back at the story you know, of our life. But ultimately, it's a story with a goal toward heaven. And so it's goal-directed or teleological. And music that has a goal, that's moving toward that goal, and you can hear that and perceive it, is very powerful and compelling. Just as a story itself, I mean, I'm a big fan of Tolkien and uh, uh, George MacDonald and, you know, the fairy tale genre, and um, I'm rereading the Lord of the Rings trilogy now, and, well, you know, it's it's so, it's massive, you know, the three novels are, you know, hundreds of pages, and um, and it's very challenging in a way to stay with it. But how rewarding it is, and it's the same with a piece of of music uh, that's narrative in nature. You're, as I say, you're on a kind of a boat ride through your imagination. That's that's just magical and wonderful. And you know, so what I do is, even uh, I mean, I've never outgrown it. I at night, if I can't sleep, instead of being a newsaholic, uh, I try to put on headphones and listen to some great music, just some beautiful music, and just lie there in the dark and just listen to it. And uh, and it, it's, it can be so encouraging and uplifting. The music of Brahms, like the, the symphonies of Brahms, leave you just thrilled by the end with, with hope and, and joy and glorious optimism. So, yeah, it has a lot to offer. And so what I give in the book is... People don't, they come to me after a talk or something and they say, you know, I've always wanted to listen to classical music, but I don't know how to get into it or where to start. So in the book, in the one of the appendices, I give a list of um, user-friendly pieces that everyone is guaranteed to to love as a beginner in, you know, listening to classical music. And there's a kind of a playlist for you uh, to to listen to. Um, so if you get that book, you'll get a little bit of uh, some guidance in getting into classical music. So I think something people want. You know, the names are hard to pronounce. You feel intimidated. In Europe, it's not like that. My pieces are played in in Germany, and they're like families, you know, there and there. The kids come up to me at the end, and, and the same in Japan, I've had that experience. So, And here, for some reason, it's this hoity-toity thing with only uh, adults and um, oftentimes and um, you know it's it gives an aura of elitism in some way that's that's not really necessary well on that point I mean your uh, your own history as a classical music composer as a classical composer is is actually a pretty dramatic story um, and so you began as a critically acclaimed writer of as you yourself I think would have put it in the book, you know, kind of shrill, chaotic, atonal <laughs> music, which is really the norm in academia or in, in, um, you know, in critically acclaimed classical music today. Uh, then something happened to you and you essentially risked your whole career to seek out beauty. 
Uh, and you tell this gripping story at length in the book, and I encourage all our watchers and listeners to to, to buy the book and read Michael's pretty um, pretty fantastic story. But so, generally speaking, we only have a few minutes here. But how has the way that you think about music developed over time? Yeah, um, the, there's a great search to be original, and um, I was told that I had to be original and do something that no one had ever done, which might entail, you know, breaking a piece of glass on the stage with a hammer and all sorts of radical kind of sound effects and things, and or music that sounds like a, a cat walking on the piano keys, as they say. And uh, I, I recently, speaking of Tolkien, I came across this wonderful statement that he made that I think really answers this question in a lovely way. He says, we are heirs of many generations of ancestors in the arts. In this inheritance, there may be a danger of boredom or anxiety to be original. But the true road of escape from such weariness is not to be found in the willfully misshapen, nor in the making all things dark, or unremittingly violent, nor in fantastical complications. Before we reach such states, we need recovery. We should look at green again and be startled anew. We should meet the centaur and the dragon and then perhaps suddenly behold anew sheep, dogs and horses and wolves. Fairy stories help us to make this recovery. In that sense, only a taste for them may make us or keep us childlike. And and uh, I make a distinction between childish and childlike. We want to be childlike, not childish, of course. But the way I put it in the book is that it, there's a, this quest to keep up with the times. And in, in this quest to keep up with the times, fashion has failed to keep up with the timeless. Uh, and thrown away the timeless in search of all these bizarre kinds of expressions, often which are dark and and violent and uh, compli- overly complicated. Uh, so, so I think that's what it is. It's a cert. I mean, the the man without God is searching, and searching for something meaningful and original. And in the 20th century, it took that direction, and so did I. But eventually, my gift for writing melody is what, you know, came back, and they said I couldn't do it. And I said, well, why not? And he said, because you'll be blackballed. And I said, well, then go ahead and blackball me, you know. And I nearly was prevented from getting tenure, but I somehow managed to <laughs> skim, skim by. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, yeah, I think that it, it was a journey, a spiritual journey, that paralleled my journey into the church. Well, Michael's music is is absolutely beautiful. I encourage uh, I encourage all all our listeners to go to michaelkurek dot com m i c m i c h a e l k u r e k dot com, uh, and a lot of his music is available for free there, um, all over the site. Um, and my last question to you, the kind of departing question is, what are you working on now as a composer? Okay. And if you'll allow me to just sneak in one point, which is there's a whole chapter on lit- liturgical music. 
And in there I make the essential point that the Mass is not a place to go to be entertained. We go to a concert if we want to be entertained. The music at Mass is to create an ambiance for you to put yourself in a disposition to receive Christ in His real presence in the Eucharist. As a Catholic, that's what the music at Mass is for, not entertainment. People say, oh, well, you've got to have pop music to keep the kids coming. Kids can understand if you explain to them, look, one hour, give to God. You can do without being entertained. Then go put on the radio and be entertained. Knock yourself out. <laughs> okay, so what am I working on? Um, well, uh, I'm just finishing up a symphony which is a 45-minute giant orchestral work. And uh, I have a contract already with my record uh, company to um, record it in March, if circumstances permit orchestras to be uh, sitting at whatever distance and <laughs> playing and recording again. And uh, that's almost finished. And then I have a, a wonderful commission for a ballet. A professor at Notre Dame has a student uh, a lost his daughter tragically who was a great ballet ballerina and he wants to commission a full evening ballet in honor of her and is looking for a choreographer with a christian wow. sensibility wonderful uh, so that's something else and then uh, i have a broadway show uh, in the works because my wife is a broadway show performer and begged me to write a show which is not in my comfort zone, but I did it, and um, she's going to be singing in it in June here in Nashville. But we've had two readings in New York uh, already, and uh, so that's fun and just sort of on the side. Fantastic. Well, Michael, it's been such an honor to finally talk to you uh, after all these years of kind of yeah. corresponding through Ignatius well, Press. I should I, let me give you credit. He, this guy, edited my book magnificently. And took out all of the um, redundant words and things, <laughs> dangling participles. <laughs> and this was this was such a fun book to work on, I have to say, and I, I grew so much from it. Um, I'm kind of a pseudo musician, so it really, really, yeah. I, but I think it made me into a, a more real, at least, appreciator of music. And uh, I, I I can't thank you enough for for giving this book to the world. I think it really is it really is kind of a treasure for the church right now, especially, and I, I do have to say, I think the plug, especially the chapters and the end about, about liturgical music, which I think are actually very crucial. Um, although we did have to skip over it largely in this, uh, in this well, interview. Well, it's okay. <laughs> Thanks. But, uh, it's been, it's it's been, been wonderful. I've enjoyed it very much. All right, everybody, farewell. Bye-bye. This podcast has been brought to you by Ignatius Press. We encourage you to check out our books and videos at your local Catholic bookstore or wherever else books and videos are sold. You can also sign up to receive special discounts on books and videos at ignatius.com. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please like the podcast on the website or app from which you listen to it. And please tell your friends about it. I'm Mark Brumley, and on behalf of everyone at Ignatius Press, thanks for listening.